Chapter One of the Literary Sense. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jean Bascom. The Literary Sense by Edith Nesbit. Chapter One The Unfaithful Lover. She was going to meet her lover and the fact that she was to meet him at Cannon Street Station would almost, she feared, make the meeting itself banal, sordid. She would have liked to meet him in some green, cool orchard, where daffodils swung in the long grass and primroses stood on frail, stiff little pink stalks in the wet, scented moss of the hedgerow. The time should have been May. She herself should have been a poem, a lyric in a white gown and green scarf, coming to him through the long grass under the blossomed boughs. Her hands should have been full of bluebells, and she should have held them up to his face in maidenly defense as he sprang forward to take her in his arms. You see that she knew exactly how a tryst is conducted in the pages of the standard poets and of the cheaper weekly journals. She had to the full limit allowed of her reading and her environment the literary sense— when she was a child, she could never cry long, because she always wanted to see herself cry in the glass, and then, of course, the tears always stopped. Now that she was a young woman, she could never be happy long, because she wanted to watch her heart's happiness, and it used to stop then, just as the tears had. He had asked her to meet him at Cannon Street. He had something to say to her, and at home it was difficult to get a quiet half-hour because of her little sister's and curiously enough she was hardly curious at all about what he might have to say. She only wished for May and the orchard, instead of January and the dingy, dusty waiting-room, the plain-faced, preoccupied travellers, the dim, desolate weather. The setting of the scene seemed to her all-important. Her dress was brown, her jacket black, and her hat was home-trimmed. Yet she looked entrancingly pretty to him as he came through the heavy swing-doors. He would hardly have known her in green and white muslin and an orchard, for their love had been born and bred in town, Highbury New Park, to be exact. He came towards her. He was five minutes late. She had grown anxious, as the one who waits always does, and she was extremely glad to see him, but she knew that a late lover should be treated with a provoking coldness. One can relent prettily later on. So she gave him a limp hand, and no greeting. "'Let's go out,' he said. "'Shall we walk along the embankment, or go somewhere on the underground?' It was bitterly cold, but the embankment was more romantic than a railway carriage. He ought to insist on the railway carriage. He probably would. So she said, "'Oh, the embankment, please,' and felt a sting of annoyance and disappointment when he acquiesced. They did not speak again till they had gone through the little back streets, past the police station and the mustard factory, and were on the broad pavement of Queen Victoria Street. He had been late. He had offered no excuse, no explanation. She had done the proper thing. She had awaited these with dignified reserve, and now she was involved in the meshes of a silence that she could not break. How easy it would have been in the orchard! She could have snapped off a blossoming branch, and, and made play with it somehow. Then he would have had to say something. But here the only thing that occurred to her was to stop and look in one of the shops till he should ask her what she was looking at and how common and mean that would be compared with the blossoming bough. And besides, the shops they were passing had nothing in the windows except cheap pastry and models of steam-engines. Why on earth didn't he speak? He had never been like this before. She stole a glance at him, and for the first time it occurred to her that his something to say was not a mere excuse for being alone with her. 
He had something to say, something that was trying to get itself said. The keen wind thrust itself even inside the high collar of her jacket. Her hands and feet were aching with cold. How warm it would have been in the orchard. "'I'm freezing,' she said suddenly. "'Let's go and have some tea.' "'Of course, if you like,' he said uncomfortably. Yet she could see he was glad that she had broken that desolate silence. Seated at a marble table, the place was nearly empty, she furtively watched his face in the glass, and what she saw there thrilled her. Some great sorrow had come to him, and she had been sulking. The girl in the orchard would have known at a glance. She would gently, tenderly, with infinite delicacy and the fine tact of a noblewoman, have drawn his secret from him. She would have shared his sorrow, and shown herself half-wife, half-angel from heaven in this dark hour. Well, it was not too late. She could begin now. But how? He had ordered the tea, and her question was still unanswered. Yet she must speak. When she did, her words did not fit the mouth of the girl in the orchard. But then it would have been May there, and this was January. She said, How frightfully cold it is! Yes, isn't it? he said. The fine tact of a noblewoman seemed to have deserted her. She resisted a little impulse to put her hand in under the marble table, and to say, "'What is it, dearest? Tell me all about it. I can't bear to see you looking so miserable.' And there was another silence. The waitress brought the two thick cups of tea, and looked at him with a tepid curiosity. As soon as the two were alone again, he leaned his elbows on the marble and spoke. "'Look here, darling, I've got something to tell you, and I hope to God you'll forgive me and stand by me.' and try to understand that I love you just the same, and whatever happens I shall always love you." This preamble sent a shiver of dread down her spine. What had he done? A murder? A bank robbery? Married someone else? It was on the tip of her tongue to say that she would stand by him whatever he had done. But if he had married someone else, this would be improper. So she only said, Well, and she said it coldly, Well, I went to the Simpsons' dance on Tuesday. Oh, why weren't you there, Ethel? and there was a girl in pink, and I danced three or four times with her. She was rather like you, side-face, and then after supper in the conservatory I, I talked nonsense, but only a very little, dear, and she kept looking at me so, as if she expected me to—to—and to, and so I kissed her, and yesterday I had a letter from her, and she seems to expect to think—and I thought I ought to tell you, darling. Oh, Ethel, do try to forgive me. I haven't answered her letter. Well, she said, that's all he said miserably stirring his tea she drew a deep breath a shock of unbelievable relief tingled through her so that was all what was it compared with her fears she almost said never mind dear it was hateful of you and i wish you hadn't but i know you're sorry and i'm sorry but i forgive you and will forget it and you'll never do it again but just in time she remembered that nice girls must not take these things too lightly what opinion would he form of the purity of her mind, the innocence of her soul, if an incident like this failed to shock her deeply? He himself was evidently a prey to the most rending remorse. He had told her of the thing as one tells of a crime. As the confession of a crime, she must receive it. How should she know that he had only told her, because he feared that she would anyhow hear it through the indiscretion of the girl in pink, or of that other girl in blue, who had seen and smiled? How could she guess that he had tuned his confession to the key of what he believed would be an innocent girl's estimate of his misconduct? Following the tingle of relief came a sharp, sickening pinch of jealousy and mortification. These inspired her. "'I don't wonder you were afraid to tell me,' she began. "'You don't love me. You've never loved me. I was an idiot to believe you did.' "'You know I do,' he said. "'It was hateful of me. But I couldn't help it.' Those four true words wounded her more than all the rest. "'Couldn't help it?' 
then how can i ever trust you even if we were married i could never be sure you weren't kissing some horrid girl or other no it's no use i can never never forgive you and it's all over and i believed in you so and trusted you i thought you were the soul of honour he could not say and so i am on the whole which was what he thought her tears were falling hot and fast between face and veil for she had talked till she was very sorry indeed for herself forgive me dear he said then she rose to the occasion never she said her eyes flashing through her tears you've deceived me once you'd do it again no it's all over you've broken my heart and destroyed my faith in human nature i hope i shall never see you again some day you'll understand what you've done and be sorry do you think i'm not sorry now she wished that they were at home and not in this horrible tea-shop under the curious eyes of the waitress at home she could at least have buried her face in the sofa-cushions and resisted all his pleading at last perhaps letting him take one cold passive hand and shower frantic kisses upon it he would come to-morrow however and then at present the thing to compass was a dignified parting good-bye she said i'm going home and it's good-bye for ever no it's only painful for both of us there's no more to be said you've betrayed me i didn't think a decent man could do such things she was pulling on her gloves go home and gloat over it all and that poor girl you've broken her heart too this really was a master-stroke of nobility he stood up suddenly do you mean it he said and his tone should have warned her are you really going to throw me over for a thing like this the anger in his eyes frightened her and the misery of his face wrung her heart but how could she say no of course not i'm only talking as i know good girls ought to talk so she said yes good-bye he stood up suddenly then good-bye he said and may god forgive you as i do and he strode down between the marble tables and out by the swing door it was a very good exit at the corner he remembered that he had gone away without paying for the tea and his natural impulse was to go back and remedy that error and if he had they would certainly have made up but how could he go back to say we are parting for ever but still i must insist on the sad pleasure of paying for our tea for the last time he checked the silly impulse what was tea and the price of tea in this cataclysmic overthrowing of the universe so she waited for him in vain and at last paid for the tea herself and went home to wait there and there too in vain for he never came back to her he loved her with all his heart and he also had what she had never suspected in him the literary sense therefore he never dreaming that the literary sense had inspired her too perceived that to the jilted lover two courses only are possible suicide or the front so he enlisted and went to south africa and he never came home covered with medals and glory which was rather his idea to the few simple words of explanation that would have made all straight and repaid her and him for all the past because destiny is almost without the literary sense and destiny carelessly decreed that he should die of enteric in a wretched hut without so much as hearing a gun fired literary to the soul she had taken no other lover but mourns him faithfully to this hour yet perhaps after all that is not because of the literary sense it may be because she loved him i think i have not mentioned before that she did love him end of chapter one recording by jean bascom potomac maryland